You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Devin Johnson, the president of Uninterrupted. You may be familiar with the media platform because uh, this is the company that was founded by LeBron James and Maverick Carter. They're doing big things in LA and Devin's the president. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about your role at Uninterrupted uh, and what you do here. I'm the uh, president and chief operating officer of Uninterrupted. Uninterrupted is a digital media platform that is dedicated to um, providing a platform for athletes to tell stories. Uh, Our goal is to um, effectively be the platform of choice for athletes as they are starting to become more vocal, um, more active, and effectively living their more than an athlete life. Your primary backers uh, are LeBron James and Warner Brothers? Uh, our investor group is uh, Spring Hill Entertainment, which is LeBron and Maverick uh, Carter. The, they're the founders of that. And um, the Warner Brothers. Um, well, it's now Warner Media. There's been, some, there's been a change in the landscape. So it was uh, Warner Brothers and Turner, uh, which now fold under uh, Warner Media. So I guess... It's really just that and Warner Media and uh, and also the Fenway Sports Group, which is Tom would Warner. It, would it be inaccurate to say that you're LeBron James' digital media point? No, no. No. I run a digital media business that's founded by LeBron and Maverick. Okay. Um, that's that's a separate part of the world. I mean, this is a uh, full self-standing business that is not dependent on one particular athlete. We are the platform for all athletes. Uh, so talk about your story. You're, you're from Chicago, uh, and then you went to Duke uh, uh, for your MBA. There's, there's some stuff in between there. Yeah, 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 I know, but walk, <laughs> walk, walk us through that. Yeah, so um, from Chicago, I uh, went to the University of Michigan, the best university in the world, uh, Go Blue, and uh, then uh, came back home and uh, worked for a company called Helene Curtis, and I was doing uh, f- uh, financial auditing at the time. Did that for a brief hot second. The company was bought by uh, Unilever, and I was asked to move to New Jersey and really opted out of new, moving to New Jersey at the time and uh, went over to work for the Quaker Oats company, which was then bought by Pepsi. So I'm just uh, uh, an acquisition magnet, I guess. And um, worked there doing audit and international projects, You know, traveled all over the world. Uh, but always had a desire and a wish to uh, work in media. And, you know, I was the guy that was, even though I was on the finance side, I was reading Ad Age. I was uh, interviewing at advertising agencies, trying to get a job at an advertising agency. And uh, none of that worked out uh, until I, um, uh, what was it, in, uh, I think we're now in the late 90s, uh, went to work for a Tribune company. And that was right as they were launching their digital strategy. Let's talk about the media and advertising space. Three years ago, did you see this carnage coming in terms of popular websites shutting down, other websites selling, one uh, website, Little Things, of course, uh, they just completely shut down. One of the most popular sites uh, marketing on Facebook, you had Mashable. They had a valuation of $250 million. They ended up selling for uh, $50 million. So, you know, as you know, we're seeing a lot of pressure in the, 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 the digital media business. Right. Did you see the amount of carnage that you see three years ago? 
I mean, no, I don't know if I could have predicted what's happened over time, but I mean, we talked about it. I mean, we've I, four or five years ago, we were talking yeah. about just kind of just how unsustainable it is the way that folks were driving traffic. And I, I think, you know, the key is always in, or for me, when I see anything happening inorganically, anytime that you have to spend, you know, half of your money trying to drive traffic versus having people that are actually coming and engaging with your brand, that's a challenge. Um, and people, there were entire industries being built on buying traffic. And so- Buzzfeed. There's tons of them. Yeah. I mean, it was happening. I mean, it's, it's, it was happening literally everywhere. Um, so it's not crazy to believe that, call it, you know, three, fast forward three or four years later, that some of the folks that were doing that, um, you know, are not around. Because at the end of the day, this business, this media business, in my opinion, is always about your ability to create great content that people are interested in and then your ability to monetize that that content. And if you're if you need to go out and effectively acquire temporary customers to view your content, it's just not sustainable. What would you say to the publisher who says look at television. You launch a new show. You launch an, uh, another season of a show. We have to put marketing budget behind it. We can't just kind of sit back. We have to market that new series, that new show. But as part of any good audience acquisition retention strategy, you have to spend money, whether it's in TV or online, that you're being unfair to online publishers. Well, then you got to look at it as so in that scenario, if I'm if I'm marketing a TV show that's coming out, it's still if it's not sustainable to market to each individual viewer and get one view and then they don't show up again. But that happens sometimes. It will, but... Super if, Bowl. How, how so? There's a lot of people who will watch the Super Bowl. It's, okay. a, it's a big event. Yeah. Right? But that doesn't mean they're watching every game. So if, you're, if you have a, a really good video, let's say you got a five-minute video or whatever... Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really good. People are sharing it. People are engaging with it. They're watching the full video. Why wouldn't the digital media company promote and invest in that to, 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 to pair the right audience at the right time with the right piece of content? Why I, wouldn't they be investing in marketing that piece of content? I think philosophically, you just have to always, and, and I don't know if I would look at it on a per video basis, but philosophically, you have to be able to show some bit of return or repeat customers. And so if I'm if if I'm if if you're investing in marketing towards, you know, if we're investing in, in marketing like an uninterrupted show and, you know, each week the tra- the traffic for it goes down, then we, we I see have, what I see what you're saying. It's, so it's, it's a waste of money. So it sounds like you're pro, you know, paid marketing, paid traffic in a sense, but you have yeah. to be optimizing for LTV. You have to be optimizing for real value, not just kind of a short-term arbitrage or to pump your comp score numbers up. Right. Well, I don't even live in the comp score world, but yeah. yeah, but, but exactly. I mean, I'm not about, I'm not about anything that feels artificial. And so I don't, I don't have a problem with paid marketing because paid marketing to your point, you know, if I'm paying, if I'm trying to attach my content to the, a very specific viewer, that's fine. But where you're going to see, if you're doing it artificially, 
you're not going to have any engagement. That's not going to be a good experience for your brand. And that's when it all kind of falls down. Do you spend money on Facebook now for to market your content? Yes. You do? Yeah. But in terms of what makes your marketing organic and not artificial? I'm not saying that um, all marketing is inorganic. I'm just saying that if you're building your business, if you're meaning your end goal is repeat traffic, that's yeah. that's what you're optimizing for. Yeah. yeah, I'm always hopeful. Anytime that I'm spending marketing dollars uh, on any any of our content, I'm always hopeful that they're engaging in the content that I've attached the right content to the right right eyeball, and these are people that will potentially reoccur as customers for us. That's always the goal and always the hope. I want to share with you a great company called TopTal. That's T-O-P-T-A-L. This is a company that I use if you're in the market for a freelancer, uh, whether it's an engineer or a designer. This is one of the leading companies that's going to help you identify and hire top freelancing talent. Uh, you can go to moguldom.com forward slash top towel. You click on that link and register and someone will get right back to you to get more information. Be sure to uh, check out top towel. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think about, uh, a digital conference, uh, in Miami, uh, and it's a group of executives and CEOs and the founder and CEO of little things is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're sitting at the bar. And we start talking about pay traffic and he starts bragging to me that Facebook is giving him inside information on how the algorithm works, how they can optimize their pages mm -hmm. because they're spending millions of dollars a month on pay traffic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I have wrote about this and I, I thought about uh, Zynga. Uh, Zynga was crushing it on Facebook. They IPO'd uh, the valuation, went to, I believe, over a billion dollars. And then Facebook changed the rules against them. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially, the market cap was uh, more than cut in half based on what changes Facebook wanted to do. And, and it brings up when you when your whole business is marketing on a platform, it's built on someone else's platform, it could collapse. You can be a digital media Lehman Brothers. And also, oh, of course, sure. as you know, uh, demand media. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, the, and the Google Panda update. But when I, I shared with him uh, Zynga and Google's Panda update, its effect on uh, demand media, but he kind of like kind of laughed it off after that. But, uh, you know, you were very bearish on the idea of pay traffic several years back ago. Back when I was Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, back, yeah. Yeah, yeah, back, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, it's it's always been a. I mean, it's just been a problem. I mean, you you own a business. I mean, you know how difficult that was, and you know if you're not. I mean, I think here's the thing, and and I don't even know if this is a dated, even I don't even know if people still do this anymore. But but back in those days, so we're talking, call it four to five years ago, when maybe paid was at its height, and people were still going to websites and all that stuff. I mean, if it's one thing to by traffic, but it's another thing to totally ignore actually building organic traffic and building customers. You know, I'm as a as a uh, as a publisher, I'm always trying to build customer. I want to build my customer database. So for us, when you know, so 
I started here maybe two two years ago. Yeah, about two years ago. And one of the first you know uh, decisions I needed to make was was I going to build a website because we were in a world of distributed media, so people were living on IG, Facebook, Twitter, and that was the business. Snap, and that was the business. They didn't need a website. Problem is is what you just articulated is that your entire business is built on platforms you don't control. And if you aren't establishing one-to-one relationships with customers, what is your long-term effect? And I would just always be nervous about being a publisher in which in in which I don't own or have a relationship with any of my customers. That to me is a red flag. While we're on the subject of uh, Facebook, um a Microsoft researcher uh, around the time of uh, Facebook started to lose steam, they studied the flight off of MySpace. And what the Microsoft researchers said is that there was white flight, like a neighborhood where black folks moving in, we out, right? So the Microsoft researchers suggested that there was white flight out of MySpace because it started to get ghetto. Uh, and. In, in, in other people's terms, right? Essentially, this is the Microsoft researchers. It's not my point of view, I mean, obviously. You're going to have to cite this. <laughs> yeah, <to> <laughs> so, so uh, people move off MySpace, and they, you know, they start migrating to Facebook, but Facebook is exclusive, right? First, it's only Ivy League schools. Then they start going into opening up high, you know, top-tier schools, and they start going down the list. And Facebook starts off as like an exclusive community and people want in. They want their school to get on the Facebook platform. Do you think there's a possibility that Instagram is very popular with African-Americans specifically? Instagram, IG, you know, IG this, IG that. It's super, super popular. Do you believe that there could be a similar situation where Instagram becomes dominated by people of color, people who another segment of America believes are lower value, or they kind of bring down their feeling of importance, that you could have white flight uh, increasingly off of Instagram and advertisers could follow the white flight off of Instagram. So this is the first time I've ever heard of the white flight being associated to social. So this is an interesting dialogue but i i don't see that happening because i think at its core social is important to people to all people social media has just become kind of that thing and so i don't see a scenario where people look up and um are looking around at the platform and seeing who's on it and saying oh i'm gonna get off because i don't like the other people people's social graph is their social graph i don't think a lot of people know like if, if you're white, I don't think you know what black Twitter is. Yeah. It don't affect you. But, you know, Trump has built, back to your Trump thing, Trump has built an entire kind of infrastructure using Twitter as a way of creating a Barker channel. So, are, and I guess to use your example, are black people leaving Twitter because it's become kind of the Trump platform in a way? Not so much. Um, I think it's just your social graph is your social graph. You interact with who you interact with. You follow who you follow. And that's what it is. 
Okay, so to keep it a hundred percent accurate, uh-oh. uh oh, this is out of. Wait, the, are you are you about to retract something you just? Oh uh, no, no, absolutely oh, okay. not, absolutely <laughs> okay. not. So um, in the MIT Technology Review uh, in 2010, they cover this, and and the headline is: Did whites flee the digital ghetto of MySpace? Uh, a new analysis by Microsoft researcher Dana Boyd argues that Facebook's success is due in part to white flight from MySpace. And they go on to say uh, really quick, we were talking about the social media practices of her classmates when I asked her why most of her friends were moving from MySpace to Facebook. This is, I guess, the researcher talking to uh, MySpace users. Kat grew noticeably uncomfortable. She began simply noting that MySpace is just old now and it's boring. But then she paused, looked down at the table, and continued. It's not really racist, but I guess you could say that I'm not really into racism, but I think that MySpace now is more like ghetto or whatever. Uh, this is just a quote they, 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 okay. they, they kind of set up. The, yeah, I don't know if I build a whole theory on that, but what I was yeah, say, yeah, yeah. That's that's just like the yeah. the teaser for the for the yeah. I, and I didn't read yeah. the article, but yeah, I I, I think that um, it's one of those correlation versus causation thing. Is that um, Facebook was after MySpace, so you can certainly say, well, MySpace's decline was contributed to by Facebook's increase. But the reality of it is, I'll stand by what I said. I think your your social graph, your social graph. And if, if these platforms are doing what they're supposed to do in terms of connecting people and providing entertainment, providing content in a uh, frictionless manner, I mean, I think there will always be folks on them. And, and I don't, IG, I don't consider that to be pre uh, prevalent to African-Americans versus it seems like it's a platform that is you know, used by all folks. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm not doubting I don't, that. I don't yeah. think there's going to be. I don't, I don't foresee any type of scenario where you look up and it's all black and the white folks are on the new thing. Got it. You know what's really going to drive it is culture drives it. You know, cult, wherever the coolest spot is, that's where people are. No. Uh, if the Microsoft researcher, well, not, not. I won't even go to Microsoft, but if people left MySpace... The cool people were on MySpace. Hear me out. Were they? Yes. In terms of the music artists, okay. rappers. All right. The, peop the cool people were on MySpace. Okay. And the researcher, at least this is what they're suggesting out of Microsoft, mm -hmm. is that people, Mark Zuckerberg said, hey, you have to go to an Ivy League school to be on Facebook. Brilliant. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. In terms of the consumer mentality uh, and the class system in America, to even get on my platform, you got to go to Ivy League school. Hold up. Okay, I'm going to open it up. <laughs> this is not how it happened. You see the movie and say it didn't happen. No, 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 no. This is how no. it... Hold on. Okay. Facebook was an exclusive social network, 100%, and it was only that's open true. to Ivy League schools. And then that's they, where it started. It was built on that, and then exactly, they expanded but, outward. But that exclusivity, I believe... Uh, was instrumental in terms of people wanting to be part of it, meaning that you had to be a part of kind of Ivy League top-tier schools. I don't know if it's the Ivy League exclusivity. But I that's think, not I, the cool I think exclusivity in general, okay. I think, is what drove that. But the cool people weren't on Facebook. The more people, cool people were on MySpace. But this class kind of elitism, people wanted that, and, of course— started to my my one factor uh of of many in terms of migrating over i believe migrating over to where facebook 
uh, in, in terms of they want access to the exclusive exclusivity. So it was not, it's not that the cool people are at Facebook and I want to go over to where the cool people are. Uh, unless you, I don't even think you can make, if you, if you just look at the sheer numbers of it all, I don't think that you could make a, um, you can't draw a link between people leaving MySpace because Facebook is a billion users. What was what was uh, MySpace at its prime? Millions, at best. I mean, it was just social media grew. I mean, the whole idea of it. There, whoever was on MySpace, I guarantee you, whoever the percentage of folks was on MySpace, a hundred percent of those, or call it ninety percent of those people, were on. Facebook, and then the whole idea of social grew. So just the the adoption of just that as a platform grew. So they Facebook was just at the right time. Well, you could also say they drove and made it the right time. Yeah. Okay. So three four years ago, you were very bearish on the the media landscape. You, uh, I believe. Uh, Am I was I bearish on the media landscape, or was I bearish on on companies that were inorganically trying to drive? I think you were bearish uh, on the media landscape in general. Yeah, I, I think right. you were correct in terms of right. some of the trends on CPMs and other stuff yes. that was going on. Uh, you were very uh, bullish on. I'm a brand- finance guy. I'm always yeah. looking at. I'm looking at CPMs. You were very bullish on branded content, uh, but yes. Where you are yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. actually reminding me. I really okay. was. I was, yeah. I was ahead of my time. Thank you. You should have paid me more as your consultant. That's true. That's true. So 2018, folks want to get in the media business, digital media business. Uh, you know, they want to build uh, the next big digital media company. You know, what are some what are some things you believe younger entrepreneurs and executives miss uh, about how challenging it is uh, in these digital media streets. Yeah, man. Media's hard. Yeah. I mean, this business, I think it chews up a lot of folks. And I think the biggest thing is what do you have that's special and unique? You know, what's your special sauce? And that could be a perspective. That could be a brand. I mean, that's one thing I've learned from Mav is Mav is very meticulous about the brand of Uninterrupted. You know, I was probably of the mindset if before working for him, I probably would have just said, hey, you know, if I can if we can just create great content, if we could just do, you know, amazing content, that's just enough. And, you know, the content will find, you know, eyeballs. And there's a lot that happens beyond that. You know, the uninterrupted brand and what it represents and, and, you know, the more than an athlete mantra, all of that matters to how we are positioned, how brands think about us, how athletes think about us, how consumers think about us, they're all very kind of tied it together. But let's let's come down a little bit. So, you know, I'm come down. I'm too yeah, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, too, you're you're way too high. Okay, so well, so a lot of us practically uh, speaking a lot of folks out there in terms of the audience, they don't have the they don't have access to the athlete network. They don't have the LeBron. Uh you got kind of a lot of uh, secret sauce kind of built in, right? Uh, but for entrepreneurs, uh, media professionals who are in the game and want to get in the game, what do they need to know uh, about how challenging this space is? In terms of that, it may not be obvious. Um, well, I think it's, I think one thing that I think people underestimate is how 
difficult it is to, um, I was going to say sell advertising, but I think establish partnerships with brands. I think selling advertising is difficult. Establishing partners with brands is very difficult. And that would be also be at the uh, top of my list. Yeah. Meaning that, you, you know, I've met folks who they think they're going to build an audience, mm -hmm. get the right content, and then you're just going to be, you know, selling uh, to all these brands uh, with, you know, three, five million dollar uniques. I'm going to hire a sales team and I'm going to close these deals. Right. But what I found uh, in my career in terms of closing the sales deal, in mm -hmm. terms of the when you factor in how much scale is needed to compete today yeah. in terms of, you know, a big audience. Right. You're also competing against Facebook and Google mm -hmm. uh, in, in some cases is that just the simple process of closing a sales deal in terms of, you know, whining and dining process, people in you your, always hated that part. People in your network. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, in terms of you're leveraging people in your network that some buying decisions uh, uh, are not just based on an objective point of view on the audience and the property. I know uh, that's your point of view. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you want to talk a little bit more uh, about kind of some non-obvious uh, challenges that you see? Um, creating great content. Content that's going to cut through the clutter, I think, is still also challenging. Um, you know, there's just a lot of people out there. And so as media – and the media landscape is changing – or no, let me say it differently. The content creation landscape is changing in the sense that, you know, there are people doing full movies on an iPhone. And so these are things that I don't think any of us were contemplating like four, five years ago. So the idea of, you know, creating something and what it's going to take to do that and cutting through the clutter and getting it to the eyeballs that matter, I think is really challenging. And I think people really underestimate that. Before a new digital media property uh, starts to think about subscriptions, Subscriptions. Subscriptions. Now, now, uh, right? now you're really getting on the hard stuff. <laughs> uh, so, you know, New York Times was, was whenever, at least from, from my point of view, everyone was chasing BuzzFeed. Like, oh, look at BuzzFeed. You know, they're spending millions of dollars and people are sharing on Facebook. But Facebook, BuzzFeed has never made any money. They've never printed any cash flow, right? But the market was chasing BuzzFeed. Uh, and then the market was bearish negative on the New York Times. But how things played out, I believe New York Times, uh, to the credit to them, they knew how things were going to play out, right? So you can't sell advertising better than the New York Times. But it was a tell by the New York Times in terms of how hard they were going on subscriptions that it's not enough advertising for y'all. Meaning that New York Times is going to be able to get in those big advertising meetings and close those deals. But they saw that the only su sustainable business was a subscription business. And now New York Times uh, is doing, I believe, a billion dollars of subscription revenue. So the market is chasing BuzzFeed, mm -hmm. no profits, VC funded. VCs can always lose a lot of money and they got time mm -hmm. uh, for the right setup. Uh, and then New York Times profitable and a billion dollars of subscription revenue. What did the market miss about that? Well, I think a lot of it is positioning. I mean, I think New York Times stayed very disciplined in their approach, and they knew where their skill set lies and what they do well. They knew what their core competency is. They can, what we said earlier, you, they can create a great content, and they can monetize it. 
now the world started changing around it. And so maybe the value of that and you can have that conversation. But BuzzFeed, I mean, I don't really have good insights on what they were particularly good at aside from they they cracked the code in terms of virality they were a pioneer in how to make stuff uh go viral and amplify content on facebook specifically so so to me that's your distribution so that's like you know a beverage company figuring out distribution without having a really good product and so what is Coke if they can't get it to the customers? Or actually said differently, if, if Coke had a distribution strategy but didn't have Coke and they were just selling, you know, whatever, it wouldn't work. And so that probably is what kind of happened to BuzzFeed. But, you know, New York Times, to their credit, has always stayed focused and they have something that people are willing to pay for, which is difficult. You know, that's, that's the lens I look at, I try to look at our content through. You know, I always try to look at it through the lens of would someone pay for that? Not because I'm going down a subscription um, business model, but but because I think that is the, a great filter to determine whether you're doing really good stuff. Do you have a certain milestone? Well, first, uh, do you plan on rolling out subscriptions? I don't think we have any plans for that. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say yes or no. It's just that if if, if you know, my strategic plan is probably sitting in there. There's nothing in that for the is there a, short term. Is there an audience or engagement? Is there a, a metric or a couple of metrics you would like to see? Let's say you invest in startups as well. You've been investing in uh, tech uh, startup companies for a while. But if a company said, hey, I'm going to roll out subscriptions, mm-hmm. what type of milestones do you think you need before you even think about asking your audience to pay? It all starts. Is there any, can you quantify? It anything? all starts with one thing: great content. You know, the, there's the so, athletic. So yeah. the athletic is out there. Are you familiar with them? Uh, yes. So yeah. they are effectively trying to create the paid version of you know the sports world, and so they've picked off all you know lots of top journalists, um, and are putting them under behind their paywall. I don't know how it's performing. I heard it's is doing pretty well, um, but so there's no- they're making a bet. On if we get if we can find the best possible journalists and put them behind a paywall, that people will be willing to pay for that. I think that's you know I think that's a challenge. I think getting people to pay for um, editorial content is going to be a challenge. I mean, if you're not New York Times and you know uh, the Economist, Post. the Washington Post, and those yeah. kind of folks, I think it gets there's there's really strong drop off now. It's worth the bet if you're if you're the athletic. It's worth it because it's sports, and sports is a thing that people love and they're passionate about it. So why wouldn't people pay for it? But it's going to be hard because there's so much. Because the reason why it's hard is there's a lot of sports content out there. I agree with you to an extent, but what I see is that as the advertising money goes away, the content companies can't subsidize quality content anymore, and so. The shift, there, there's a big uh, uh, delta uh, uh, between ad-supported content, meaning that, hey, if, if a site is just ad-supported, I believe the content quality is going down. Uh, uh, there's, there's lower quality. But to get better content, most of those properties are going to go the way of Washington Post. Bloomberg, of course, released their subscription product. 
but you're going to start to see kind of mid-level and then smaller organizations make subscriptions work and the ad supported stuff it's going to be hard for them to produce quality content and, and so i think there's a consumer behavior uh, you're going to see uh, a big shift in consumer behavior over the next five to ten years. Well, in terms a, of paying for online well, subscriptions, there, there's always going to be a share of wallet conversation, which is um, what am I willing to pay for? I'm willing to pay for my Netflix. I'm willing to pay for um, Hulu. I'm willing to pay for whatever. Um, and where does that fit into to my to that share of wallet? Um, I think it's editorial. I think it's squeezed more and more because one big issue that editorial has is that um, they'll break a story. So you'll have your your highly connected journalists that will that you're spending you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for. They'll break a story, and then some dude you know has a blog next door that's going to say per New York Times. If you're lucky, they say per you know New York Times or per that art. Um, that um, newspaper so-and-so's got traded now you've paid all that money for the journalist and then you got the guy next door doing it on his couch and just basically referencing and piggybacking on all your journalism that's the challenge on the editorial side that's one of the reasons i try to stay out of that world what attracted you to the media business where you said hey i have to be in this industry was there anything in particular you know it's an interesting question I, i i don't know the answer to it i think um I really liked the storytelling elements of it. I really liked, um, you know, the kind of that bridging the advertising business and helping products uh, market themselves and being a platform for that. Uh, when I was in college, um, was it? yeah, when I was in college, I worked for a publication called the Black Student Monthly. I founded a black uh, the Black Student Monthly with uh, okay, you've been a journalist. Game. So yeah. I've always kind of been around it and just enjoyed it. Uh, but I, I don't know that one particular thing that just says, you know, this is why I do it. Okay, got it. So you go to Duke, uh, and uh, there's two other executives that come to mind uh, who graduated uh, with the Duke MBA, uh, Aki at She Knows, mm-hmm. and also know, Tavio at Interactive One. But there's not a lot of us at the top in the industry. Do you believe there could be something there in terms of just Duke? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Fuqua's a great school. They have uh, great entrepreneurial uh, courses. Um, I don't think there's a correlation between executives in media and the Fuqua School of Business, but I think Fuqua prepares, uh, for, prepares us for whatever careers we want to be, and I was in that field. Do you know of three brothers that are at uh, your level uh, in terms of the three of you in the industry uh, from uh, another B school, black. Uh, I'm sure Harvard could stake claim to that if they wanted to. I can't think of them. That all. you know. That I know? In digital media, digital media. I probably could go there. Uh, yeah. There's Alvin Bowles. Uh, he's a Harvard guy. Uh, probably Stanford is another one. Um, there's uh, Michael Smith, uh, who I believe is a Stanford alum. Um, they're we're all spread over. Yeah. If I thought long enough and we yeah. wanted to, you know, pull out my LinkedIn page, I could do some research and get you some names. And how much credit uh, would you assign to your success, professional success, to going to an elite business school versus, let's say, going to a middle-of-the-road business school? Meaning, can, can you kind of 
separate the alpha where I think really Duke mattered in, in, in terms of my resume and my pedigree. You know, I think all that stuff kind of, you know, when you've been in a career as long as I have now, I'm approaching 20-something years, um, where you go to school becomes less important. Now, I'm not going to say it hasn't opened a door or established a relationship or maybe someone looked at it and said, oh, here's a guy that maybe knows a little thing or two. But, um, you know, I think it really becomes about performance and what you've done. And I think, you know, from my career, uh, I spent a lot of time just in the trenches, proving myself, you know, working, understanding all of the aspects of operations and being in a position to uh, run a business. I mean, that's what it's about. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 that would be something that, you know, we could probably, you know, talk about over a beer or two, but I don't think it's the end all be all, but I think it does matter in terms of opening doors. Okay, got it. And for the the audience out there who are thinking about business school, mm-hmm. what would you say about the the value of business school today versus when you uh, made the decision to invest that big money in getting the MBA? Well, I was uniquely positioned that my company actually paid for my uh, graduate degree, um, so I. The decision matrix wasn't the same for me because I did an executive at MBA and I had an opportunity for my company to pay for it. So I wasn't thinking about it in the context of, ooh, I got to write this. At the time, it was a $75,000 check, which now I believe is like a $150,000 check. Um, I think your, your question is what is... Is it what, like, like, does it you, matter? Should you do it? In terms it? of the, the change in the landscape in terms of investing in a MBA. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think generally, I mean, I don't think it's just an MBA. I think there's a question on, you know, education and where you should, you know, place your bets. And I think if you have a very, um, I don't know if the word is vocational, but if you have a specific skill set like coding or your engineer, I think long and hard before, you know, investing a ton of money into an under undergraduate degree. Um, I think there are opportunities to prove yourself outside of education. I think there are ways to learn and capture skill sets outside of a formal, you know, education. And so I think there's going to be a trend. I believe there will be a trend where people are going to rely less on uh, kind of our university system. Do you believe that there's a a structural arbitrage between that's a very complicated word okay let me explain structural arbitrage that's what we doing here come on yeah yeah. (laughs) let me explain uh what i mean so uh white graduates uh will invest a hundred thousand dollars in a quality education and let's say a black uh student or family they invest a hundred thousand dollars so you end up possibly paying in this example the same price both pay 100k Mm -hmm. for their degrees Mm -hmm. but because of the 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 systematic discrimination uh and um uh kind of it's more at least i would say it's it's materially more difficult to climb the ladder in corporate america or in business Mm -hmm. if you're black versus if you're white but you're paying the same amount for the degree However, one side is set up better. Would you say that there's a material amount of structural arbitrage in terms of your degree ROI and opportunity? So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying there's a potential higher ROI because African-Americans have a tougher time in corporate America. That becomes 
an opportunity to build ROI into it. Is that, is that what you're uh, saying? Structurally, one side, uh, the white graduate side, on average, mm-hmm. is that part of the problem with the inequality numbers in the society is that you have all these black students paying for degrees, mm-hmm. but most likely you're going to get a lot less out of your degree because of the systematic... Oh, you're saying it's less. The ROI is less. Correct. Materially less, meaningfully less. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that because if you think about it, I mean, inequality exists, full stop. I mean, that's that's a conversation. But if you think about from a career perspective, we all hit walls at different times. I mean, there are folks that, you know, the kinship of the world got to the top. Um, There are also folks that, you know, have – struggle career-wise in a corporate environment in year two and year three. You know, I have a philosophy. I think there's there should be bigger attention paid to kind of the middle career folks in terms of if, if corporations are trying to uh, retain uh, quality African-American talent or quality talent, diverse talent, they need to do it in mid-career because that's when people are generally hitting the wall and then finding other things to do. And that's why you're not seeing there's a there's a sharp drop off I think from going from probably manager to director or director to VP and that's when you're you're finding African Americans fewer to find but from an education standpoint I mean I think you got to do it because if you are African American trying to find and what we talked about earlier getting those doors opening not having a degree is a tough putt walking into any of those corporate doors. Now, if you want to make a case of being an entrepreneur, that's a different conversation because now you're betting on yourself. So is it better to place $100,000 into a college education or into a potential career or an entrepreneurial um, opportunity? Depends on the opportunity. But I think it's, I think it's, it's worth a conversation and worth, worth the thinking. How do you get connected to folks like Maverick and LeBron in terms of how does that first call take place where you're in the mix for a new venture? How did this opportunity pop up on your radar? Yeah, uh, I was fortunate that um, Time Warner has a uh, executive recruiting function. Um, and over the, over the years, they've always stayed in touch with me, whether I was at NBC Universal, whether I was at Tribune. Um, they, they, I've just always been in their database. And um, it just happened that Maverick, um, who's the CEO of this business, is um, through our investor group, used uh, Time Warner Executive Recruiting to fill, fill the role. Uh, they were looking for, I think it was called the general manager at the time. Um, so that was kind of the initial call. It happened through, um, through Time Warner Executive Recruitment. How many candidates do you think they looked at? Oof. If you had to guess, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Lavar was the uh, the recruiter. I, I've never asked him that question, but I'm gonna guess just knowing Mav and who he is that it was a pretty wide search. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to to be left standing at the end, but um, you know, it was a nationwide search. When I look at how uh, LeBron. Um, is kind of moving his chess pieces from a business perspective. Uh, I see a um, intention where he wants to find smart black folks and let them quarterback around me. 
uh, where there is a certain consciousness. Uh, it, would that be fair in terms of you see that intention in terms of what he's building and being very intentional in terms of, hey, I got to give my people uh, possibly a deeper look? I think what you're seeing is um, a scenario where uh, it's a level playing field for people of color. So hit, I don't think, and I, and I don't know, and I've never had this conversation with Brown, but I don't think that he wakes up and says, I want to hire black folks. I don't know if that's the case. I think he, he has very talented people around him. Um, everyone in his organization is talented. They're not all African-American. Um, and I think we've just been very fortunate that I think there is a good from LeBron and Mav, a good ability to identify talent. And I think as you come in and as you sit down with them, it's not necessarily what color are you, it's what you can contribute. And so I think what I found in my experience has been, I just feel like I'm in a very level playing field. And if they, if there was someone more qualified that was white to have this job, I think there's a good chance that person would have this job. If you really love the Go Podcast, one way to support us is going to moguldom.com, M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com forward slash survey. Fill out that quick survey. That gives us better information on our audience. It helps us with our sponsors. Uh, that's one big way you can support us and keep our movement going. Go to moguldom.com forward slash survey. Thank you. I've known uh, Devin, been friends with Devin for maybe, what, about five years? Been that long? Yeah, that sounds right. About four five or five years. Five yeah. sounds right. So on LinkedIn, uh, his credentials, his experience stood out, and I reached out to Devin. I never got hit back. Oh, All the folks goodness. out there, don't feel bad when people don't hit you back. But maybe about a go. year later. Here we go. I was like, man, this guy's experience and credentials are rock solid. I got to meet this brother. So mm -hmm. Devin hits me back on LinkedIn. Uh, we develop a, a friendship. Uh, he provides some really good consulting. Uh, that you and, never listen to. <laughs> and he is one of the only brothers that I've uh, taken fishing uh, and has not thrown up. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, about five other uh, brothers who've gone fish with me have thrown up uh, on the on on the boat. So I didn't really uh, get nauseous. It was yeah. Is yeah. that a thing? Is it seasick? Yeah, seasick. Yeah, yeah. But I don't I don't know what's going on with everybody uh, throwing up. Sometimes I don't, even, I don't get motion yeah. sickness. So, yeah. so maybe that's it. But yeah. uh, my children do, so I'm very familiar with it. Okay, so you have a very strong uh, reputation in the digital media and advertising industry as an operator, as a leader. Uh, in terms of you building that competency, that skill uh, in your industry, did you have uh, mentors or was there a particular experience, a particular stint at a place that really groomed you for the leader, uh, corporate leader that you are today? Well, I've been fortunate. I've had some really great bosses um, and uh, some of them have turned into mentors. I think the first thing is that... Um, uh, being a finance person, you know, the first, as I said earlier, the early part of my career was all in kind of auditing, financial accounting, that kind of stuff. And understanding that is pivotal to really kind of being a good up operator because I understand how margins are developed. I understand where, how fixed costs are. I, I just understand kind of the, the, 
the makeup of a PL, which allows me to, I think, become a better operator. Um, and check the creative side of the business. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, what I like to do and what I like to believe is that I enable creatives to be creative. And, you know, let me handle all of the operations. Let me handle kind of the, the messiness of making this thing into a business. I like to believe that I let creators create. Um, now, I think as I've moved west, I think I've maybe become maybe half creative and, and, and I, you know, I have an idea or two that I can kind of push through and work through. So maybe I'm coming over to the dark side and becoming creative. I don't know. But I'll never not be an operator. I'll never not, you know, think about life from the view of a P&L. Um, but to your question about uh, mentors, I mean, there was, there was certainly a few folks. Um, one of my mentors is a guy named Barry Mayo, who is um, – who was uh, an early pioneer in uh, urban radio. Um, and, you know, he's someone that I stay in touch with today. Uh, probably owe him a call right now. And um, he's a guy that, you know, when I look at what he was able to build, and he was kind of on the programming side, and he evolved formats. He's, he's an innovator. Um, and so, you know, he's someone that I've, you know, stayed in touch with. And then also there was a guy named Ezra Kuchars, and Ezra was one of the first people that I think saw me beyond my finance, financial roots. He saw me as someone that can be an operator, saw me as someone that could do something beyond uh, just managing the books. And he pulled me out of a finance role and made me, um, what else was I doing? Oh, he um, hired me to run an incubator at NBC Universal. And so the incubator was charged with trying to find uh, new ways to make money and exploit the assets of um, that NBCU had um, in new platforms. So, you know, this is I'm now dating myself, but can you make money in mobile? Can you make money in gaming um, and that kind of thing? And so he was a guy that kind of said, I think this guy can do that. And and so that switch getting out of finance was probably the most pivotal moment. Um, in my career that allowed me to be probably sitting in this seat. Okay, let's talk about uh, Uninterrupted. Um, so you guys are producing different types of content uh, in partnership uh, with Spring Hill. Films, television, podcasts, branded uh, content. It's interesting uh, that when you guys launched, you said we're not going to do editorial content. We're not going to do like kind of standard written journalist, written content. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about that process of, hey, we're going to pass this up and focus on other stuff. Yeah. One, one clarifying point is that, um, you know, Spring Hill and Uninterrupted are two separate companies. Um, and they really have two different missions. I mean, uh, Spring Hill is a traditional production company. That is their business. And what we do here is we're a digital media uh, business. Um, now, in, in this world, you know, what does that mean? And digital media, it's, you know, now there's streaming services. Now our content will, you know, likely be on linear or has been in, in the linear space. So um, it's just a different way of looking, things, looking at things. Um, in terms of editorial content, um, yeah, I mean we're we're we've been video since day one. Um, the the first piece of content we created was video. And are you just saying like, hey, there's too much 
editorial content out there. There's ESPN. There's yeah, all this other stuff. It's just too. It's, it's a glut out there. I, I never saw a reason. I never saw a reason to to be in that space. Um, the written work. There's people are still consuming editorial content. That's that's not the challenge. But to your point, it is a little crowded, um, and it's just not what this business was set up to do. I mean, um, you know, athletes were the athletes' platform. And I don't really envision a scenario where I'm asking athletes to sit in front of a, a laptop banging out articles. Um, so I think we're... Was it, a, was it a kind of relatively quick decision for you in terms of we're going to go bearish on editorial and bypass it? Or, you know, was there a lot of debate, took some time to... Well, the business model of being video was here when I showed up. So I, I showed up three months into the business and that, that was always the intent it was to do video. So there was never a decision of not to do editorial, when you say editorial, written content. However, we do create video content that is not monetized or is, in our mind, a little bit editorial in the sense of it's storytelling in a way that's not directly tied to a brand or something like that. We do that. Okay, got it. And, uh you uh, were involved with podcasts uh, relatively early on. Uh, what went into picking podcasts as, as a medium uh, three years ago before a lot of other people are now getting uh, into podcasts? Yeah, it was about two years ago. Um, I think that I was seeing the trend from where I sat. I could see the trend that podcasts were becoming a meaningful vehicle for people to tell stories. It's it's mobile. Um, it's it's very portable. It doesn't cost a lot. The 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 uh, investment is very low, um, and the the interest was really high. So you know we just saw an opportunity to just kind of you know give that a shot. I mean our our business we take risks. I mean we're we're in the position we're in a position where we can you know look at all the platforms and do where. I want to be on the platforms that are trending upward. And so to your other question of why not editorial, editorial's not trending up, upward, in my opinion. Um, so you, podcast was just a great opportunity to create a vehicle for our athletes to uh, tell their stories. And then how do you go about monetizing your podcast with advertisers? Yeah, we have um, maybe three different ways. Let me see. I've never broken them down. I mean, we do have, we have branded podcasts uh, that we've done. We're working on a uh, project right now with Nike. Um, they've launched their new Just Do It headquarters and we're doing a branded podcast with them. Um, we also have um, standard advertising that you'll you know hear the host read ads. Um, is that just using a partner and is that kind of performance marketing generally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then also, I think lastly, we do um, uh, events. Um, there's been a couple of live, uh, live events. events where yeah. sponsors have come in and sponsored an event. So there's three ways in, to monetize it. If you like what you're hearing, you can check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, so I recently read uh, CAA, the, the talent uh, management company uh, out of uh, Hollywood. Uh, they recruited a agent just to focus on podcast live events. Uh, and you're starting to see some money 
go to building out mm-hmm. live events around podcasts. Yeah. Is, is, are you guys going to be doing that? I, I I would. I mean, we've done it already. Last All Star Weekend, no, two All Star Weekends, we did it with um, a couple of our podcasts with Draymond, and we had Gabrielle Union as one of our guests, and uh, Yvonne Orgy, and uh, Ball Girl Magic Crew, which is Yvonne Orgy, and um, uh, Roz Golden Woody. So we've had. Um, We've had live events already. I just think we're we're likely going to do more. Um, you know, in a perfect world, you're doing like you know a tour. Yeah, know? but you know we're we got to crawl before we walk. Of course, Time Warner uh, sold uh, Essence. Time Inc. sold Essence. Mm-hmm. Did you guys take a look at that in terms of the, the media empire that you guys are building here? Uh, when Essence was in play, did you guys take a look at that deal? No, we're no. sports. You you would never kind of you you're <laughs> kind of staying yeah, right we're, there. We're, down we're yeah. an athletes platform, digital media sports uh, business. Uh, we it wouldn't make sense for us. Okay, got it. And we're not we don't do print. We talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you guys are able to to leverage uh, LeBron, a network of different athletes. Uh, but what are the key differentiators of you? What you guys are doing? in kind of the glut of other uh, sports media organizations? Well, I think there are, um, you know, for us, it's our relationship with athletes. Um, you know, we're not journalism, so that's a really big differentiator between a um, ESPN or, you know, some of the, you know, maybe a Fox Sports or some of the other more established players. Um, you know, we're about storytelling. And so the real opportunity for us is establishing relationships with athletes and being able to tell their, their stories in different platforms. So whether that's a podcast, whether that's a video, whether that's a long-form documentary, I mean, we've done, you know, tons of different types of content. And, and, and really for us, that's what's differentiating us. And when, you know, athletes are coming to us saying, I want to tell your story with, with Uninterrupted, that to me is um, an indicator that we're kind of in a different pod or a different space. Okay, got what it. would you say is different? Uh, what are you seeing? Or, I, I think the, the I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So from our perspective, uh, you guys are different in terms of the the media channels that you're investing in. In terms of, it seems like you guys are very focused on branded. Uh, you guys did a big deal. It looks like with Chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw that in quite a few places, but. It seems like you guys are very focused on specific pieces of the digital media space, and I think that's very different from a lot of the, hey, we do everything type of uh, players, too. Uh, I think you guys have an obvious cultural spin on content, uh, and so that's a that's a big one. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's actually, uh, I didn't say it, but that's also a big differentiator as we start, especially talking to brands. I think what we're seeing now is brands want to be attached to culture, and I think there are some folks, and this is to borrow uh, a term from my boss, Mav, that some folks are out there actually living culture and represent culture. And I think some entities out there borrowing culture, I mean, they see it and they try to, you know, manipulate it, you know, to, to fit their platform. And I think we're very, we try to be very authentic in who we are. And I think culture becomes a big part of that. On that authenticity front, mm-hmm. it seems like branded content when you work with a chase when you Mm -hmm. work with a wells fargo you you work with the equifax uh when you work with these bigger companies though you know 
how authentic mm. can you really be in yeah. terms of talking about a lot of the issues uh, that really connect with our people in terms of yeah. racism, white supremacy. So kind of do you feel trapped at times in a way where like, hey, I got to keep this content PG enough for a chase? You know, um, there is always the struggle when you're working with brands. You know, there's that, you know, there's always kind of that tension, I'll say, not struggle, the tension between kind of brands and publishers uh, when you're doing branded content. I think we have a really amazing partnership with Chase in the sense that they have the trust to allow us to be authentic and they follow our lead in terms of allowing us to create content that we think is going to cut through the clutter. And I think and you'd have to speak with them because I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think they would feel like they've been rewarded with, uh, by that trust that they've been attached to really good, strong content. And so not all relationships are going to be that strong. I mean, there's been there's, there's relationships from our management team and their management team, their senior-level executives, which has kind of laid the groundwork for us to have this type of relationship. But... That's really the key, kind of in the branded space. I mean, you gotta you you gotta let your partner cook, and if you know if they're coming to us wanting to be attached to culture and they want this, they have to let us do our thing. Now we have to be um, uh, considerate of where they sit, and they are a hundred and something year old bank, and you know there's a certain conservatism that goes along with that. So we just can't while out. But I think that's what that's what makes a good partnership that we understand where they are and they understand who we are and we try to find that common ground. And I think, you know, this is a rare situation where it's just gone very well, extremely well, probably from the start. Uh, do some of your partners put out disc disclaimers with you that, hey, we don't want to be around political stuff? Uh, I like they, they're just up front and like, hey, try to stay around, try to stay away from political stuff. I'm sure it's happened, but I'm yeah. just not I haven't really been exposed to it but i'm sure it's happened okay got it. so you're the president here how many employees roll up under you um in, in how many uh, employees are in the organization yeah we're about uh 30 30, 30 plus okay got it and before uh i thought i had read your title was ceo were you promoted to president or you came in as president no i came in as general manager okay general i was manager. hired That's as general right. manager right. and then uh became the president and coo uh, how long did that take, that step up? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe six to nine months. I'd have to check. A couple of months ago, Spotify said, after receiving uh, a lot of criticism, they said that uh, we are going to demote Art Kelly in our, in our recommendation algorithm. We're not going to pull him off of Spotify, but... I thought they pulled him. They they just demoted him. They just demoted him okay. uh, in the algorithm. Where okay. they said we're not going to recommend R. Kelly because of these complaints. Oh, so uh, left him on the platform, but he won't show up in, in the recommendation was... engines. Oh, that drives a lot of streams, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, so when this happened, uh, it's not just R. Kelly. Uh, they decided, as part of this new policy, to remove uh, other artists that seem to be mostly black artists. You know, on one hand, it's like, okay, Art Kelly, there's some big issues uh, in terms of him abusing women. There's some moral and ethical issues for sure with Art Kelly. 
However, do you have a point of view that black people should be reporting and making judgments on specific black artists and going to the big tech companies and tell and, and trust the big companies, the big tech companies to, hey, police this content, remove this content because of what these artists have done in the past or continue to do. do. Uh, do you have a point of view on, you know, kind of supporting that type of protest uh, with companies like Spotify? You know, I don't really think I'm qualified to kind of speak to that. Um, you know, it's not really, you this know, when, when, that, a, when that information came out, you know, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because, you know, from a commerce side, I've never really seen um, a company kind of take that position. Um, generally, art is art. And it's, I mean, like, you know, are, are people going to, now that Bill Cosby has been convicted, are people going to stop watching his show? They, they've taken his show off the air. Is it off everywhere? Yeah, it's off. You think uh, it's going to be off forever? Uh, possibly. I, I, I mean, uh, someone or some uh, media organizations are sacrificing a lot of revenue where they just pulled the show. Yeah. Bill Cosby. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, we're, we're, we're just in a different era, man. If you think about it, I mean, think about what happened with Roseanne. Um, you think about it from the context. I mean, when you do bad stuff, there's become kind of this... Uh, commercial kind of um, um, yeah. backlash where, you know, it can happen. But to your, the question I think that you're asking, or maybe, or at least that's what's in my head, is where do you draw the line? You know, what is the, um, what, what is the, the, the issue that could happen that could kind of, you know, knock you off of your, your pedestal? Yeah, so on a micro level, uh, the folks complaining about R. Kelly and support, right? I think morally, ethically, they're right on point with kind of, hey, this guy's a bad guy, he's an evil guy. But within the macro context, where Spotify, Google, Facebook, uh, on their own diversity reports, right, they may have 1% of black people. They may have 2% of black people, right? Mm -hmm. And so if black people are not represented at these big tech companies at 1%, 2%, mm -hmm. you're not going to be on the content policy teams who make decisions on how to police the platform and the content. So my, my problem with the, the, the group that went to Spotify is that we see uh, the, the biasness uh, in police departments, right? The black, a lot of black people don't trust the police. But Spotify policy team is the police. Google, Facebook policy. This is me talking. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say. I mean, you, I was saying, you, I'm, I'm, I'm you're saying drawing that, some interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm saying that Google and Facebook, if they are going to police the internet in terms of what information that you see, what type of anti-racist, anti-white supremacist information you see, in a certain respect, Google and Facebook. They are controlling what you see, what's being marketed to you. So they have a police function. And so if you're telling them, hey, we need more police out there, we need more police, and you see that they're rounding up majority black artists. They're not touching, you know, Bon Jovi. They're not touching Metallica, Guns oh, N' Roses. And hold on, some other folks. Well, well wait a minute, who, though. Who are, issues. Are, are, you, are you saying, well, first of all, R. Kelly, has he been convicted of anything? 
I don't believe R. Kelly has ever been in jail for a sexual but, but related crime. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I but it's been, I think it's been, you know, it's, it seems to be widely known information, but I think for you to draw that conclu- that um, link to, like, does Bon Jovi have a similar case out there like that? Or? Uh, like Axl Rose. Uh, like, there's a lot of, there's a list. And this is, Spotify, I knew this was going to happen. Uh, Spotify came back and said we were wrong. Uh, we, you know, this stuff wasn't baked. We didn't think about this mm-hmm. stuff through. Uh, so I was very uh, vocal about it uh, on Twitter. But then after that, Spotify, of course, said this doesn't make any sense. Oh, so uh, did they reverse it? Or they, they reversed it, yeah. So is he still not in the algorithm? or? Uh, I believe he's back in the algorithm. He's back in the algorithm. I believe that's my understanding. Well, that's interesting. So, so they kicked uh, one rapper off the system and they put it put it back as part of this Who policy. Who was the rapper? Triple uh, X. Uh, who who just of course oh, just was murdered? Away. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't really have a sense for where that line gets drawn. I mean, if I'm if I'm Spotify, how are you making the decision? I mean, I think the the point you're making is why one set of folks versus another, and I think that is a valid question. Um, but I think that goes to I think that just goes to trying to figure out, you know, what what makes sense in terms of if you're going to establish a policy, it's got to be a specific policy that you can that you can lay out equally. Exactly. You can't, you can't you exactly. Can't just, you and, know, choose two folks and then <laughs> draw your like uh, Michael Jackson, right? How many accusations came you're not against Michael me Jackson? on this podcast saying anything bad about yeah, Michael yeah, Jackson? Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not asking, <laughs> asking you to, but. If, at least in my view, if it's going to be so ambiguous, I do not trust a Google, Facebook, Spotify to police the content, the artist in an even way. So if I, I think, I think there's always going to be a challenge when you have commercial institutions that are trying to make decisions on morality. Uh, because I think there's just a lot of... To just uh, stay out of it. I ain't saying stay out of it. I'm just saying it's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, in in the in this in the case of Roseanne, I mean, do you think that was the right decision to pull her off? Uh, I'm conflicted on that. I don't have a uh, a definite point of view. Uh, I can say for sure I'm not in the camp uh, that hey, you know, she she uh, called someone a monkey and she loses her show. Uh, and the reason I would say that is that what's what's most likely going to happen is because we don't have the same amount of power that that policing of commentary, of talking about other groups, other people, uh, it would have a disproportionate effect on the people who have less power. Uh, so well, the, the, the interesting the, thing the, about be, that is yeah. that there was an African-American woman in power um, that made that decision, which... Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. I mean, it's just a rare it, scenario. Yeah, the, yeah, but that would uh, impact my point of view. Where, hey, if if you guys want to get a lot more freedom of speech policing, I just think that uh, that if you guys go down that route, in the short term, it looks good, right? So cer- certain races are falling down. But what I have seen online uh, and in observation that most likely that's going to have a disproportionate effect on the people with the least power and particularly yeah. groups who are fighting the system. Yeah, I get that. Okay. Uh, I want to thank uh, Devin Johnson uh, for coming on the show. Uh, Devin, if people want to follow you on Twitter and find out more inter- uh, information about Uninterrupted, you want to tell them where to go? Well, that's easy. I'm at Devin. You have the Devin. 
handle. I have the Devin handle. D-E-V-I-N. D-E-V-I-N, at Devin. Okay, so you can check out Devin online <laughs> uh, and go to uninterrupted.com. You can check out what Devin and Maverick Carter are building. Uh, it's blowing up. You guys definitely want to check it out. Thanks for coming on Go. Thanks for having me. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.